Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. Do not get it twisted. This is the only podcast in human history with two brothers talk about something they like. I'm one of those two brothers. My name is Will Hines. I'm the other brother. My name is Kevin Hines. Here's the deal with us, all right? We're comic book fans, like, lifelong, although somehow we're idiots. Every every episode, somehow, about something. Uh, we're also comedians-ish. We're four real brothers. Kevin lives on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. I think that's all you need to know. Kevin, did I miss anything? All that is important. You won't understand this podcast if you didn't know that background information. <laughs> uh, so it's good that you know that now. Especially the coast. Uh, it'll make everything make more sense. The coast, it'll just be so apparent. It'll, you'll know something is bothering you. And then you'll yeah. realize, oh, I bet one of them is not on the West Coast or vice versa, depending on whichever. I don't know what time zone the listener is in. Yeah, it's the time zone. You, they might be into the the dumb time zones. That's what we call mountain and, and central. But if you'll yeah. hear Kevin talk, be like, "Man, that's a real Eastern time zone cadence." And then I'll be talking. I'll be like, "That is a that is a Pacific time zone way to way to talk." Yeah, that's somebody who can start watching sports, uh, major sporting events three hours earlier. They'll say when they hear your voice. But now that you know the explanation, your mind can rest at ease. Kevin, um, yeah. What episode do we have today? Today is one of our world famous, earth shatteringly known classic. Uh, yeah, uh, mutants and mailbags episode. This is an episode where we discuss some issues of Chris Claremont's epic, uh, uncanny X Men run, and then we also answer listener emails sent in by you to our email address, screwitcomics at gmail dot com. But we'll do the X Men first, and the emails second. And we got a doozy of some X-Men comics today. Oh, yeah. And a doozy of some emails. So we're going over issues 133 to 137. I mean, this is maybe the most famous run of Uncanny X-Men ever. It's definitely one of them. I mean, this is a milestone of modern comics. It's up there with the Galactus trilogy in terms of its importance to Marvel's like mythology. Yeah. I, I mean, it's subjective to say whether or not this is the best thing in the X-Men run, but I think it is the biggest thing. It is the thing that put them on the map that made X-Men not just a book everyone loved, but just like a book that everyone was talking about and every eye was towards this book. So by the time they get to Days of the Future Past and uh, other things, like they already had everyone's attention here. Yeah, we're, uh, we're talking about the Dark Phoenix saga and we're just going to mm -hmm. spoil it because it is one of the most famous events in Marvel history, the Death of Phoenix. Jean Grey, the phoenix, goes evil and then dies in like very quick succession. So fast. So fast. I mean, that's that's been true. That's something Kevin and I have noticed. I mean, everybody would notice, but we're, we are new to these comics. So something that has really struck us is how just quickly things happen in the Uncanny X-Men. Like huge, huge plot developments happen. I mean, it's exciting. We, we love it. But it's just like somebody can fall in love one issue and then get divorced the next issue. And somebody can just to meet and then be absolute best friends two issues later and, and be willing to put their life on the line for them. Uh, Charles can have a flirtation with an alien and then spend six months in space right away. Yep. And then come back without thinking about her again. And immediately start chiding the X-Men for their bad behavior. Yeah. Uh, this is also following or really the tail end of the hellfire uh, storyline, the first hellfire storyline, I assume. Um, really like issue 133 is sort of the end of that story. Um, but it like, because of all the cliffhangers, everything just kind of bleeds into the next one. 
Um, right. When we left off, all of the X-Men had been defeated except for one Wolverine who had been dropped into the sewers. They thought possibly dead because they don't know Wolverine like we do. Uh, but instead he was busy posing menacingly saying that it's his <laughs> shot. Wolverine's the only X-Men who seems to know there's somebody watching because he gives yeah. so many dramatic lines and looks to camera. Yeah. <laughs> he knows, he knows how to uh, get that audience on his side. Um, it's tough. He, you got claws, you're smoking. Mm-hmm. You might not be, you're short and hairy. He knows he's got to like kind Turn of find other ways to up the charisma. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Phoenix, of course, is alive, but she has just been uh, mesmerized by the mutant sure, mastermind right. to be on, not, they're all alive, but she's not captured yeah. because she has been mentally captured by mastermind. She has been installed as the dark queen of the Hellfire Club, and they're using her massive power to hopefully rule the world is their plan. Yeah. One of the best ways to beat a team is to take their most powerful member and add it to your team. Like if you want to beat the Justice League, get Superman to join your team. I mean, that is a good strategy. Yeah. If you're trying to beat the New York Yankees of the 90s, you want to get Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams uh, to join your team. That's right. Then it'll be much easier to beat those New York Yankees. Or get Mike Mussina, not Mike Mussina, uh, uh, Mariana Rivera. Just like, hey, play for us instead today. Now, why do you think you as a Boston Red Sox fan use the Yankees as your example? Do you think they're more universal and that the audience will be more likely to know who you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to defeat somebody, who else would you want to defeat other than the New York Yankees? So if you wanted, who would I want to defeat? I see. I want to defeat the Yankees. I got it. They're the evil. They're the hellfire club of the major league. <laughs> they're the group I want to defeat. I mean, obviously in this example, they're defeating the X-Men, but I don't want to defeat the X-Men. So I wouldn't want to take Phoenix onto mm-hmm. my team. I got what you're saying. So I guess <laughs> the Justice League and the New York Yankees are the two teams I hate the most. We're just such spindly nerds that I am always impressed when either of us makes a sports metaphor that I, I, was, uh, I was really wowed by that. Well, my sports metaphor was steeped in the 90s. So right. we're also old. So uh, the X-Men, um, Kevin. I was going to say Mike Trout, but uh, you could beat the Angels even with Mike Trout playing for them because they're real bad. <laughs> so it didn't help to take him onto your team. I mean, late 90s Red Sox, if you take off Pedro, those, those, that team is done. Sure, but that team didn't win at all. Okay. So it's, you're, 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 you're taking away a guy who always loses, <laughs> you know, basically at the end of the day. Our metaphors fall apart, but... Yeah. Take David Ortiz off the 2004 uh, okay, Red there Sox. There we go. There we go. If, if you want to make it the Red Sox. Um, I thought these issues were terrible. Uh, sort of <laughs> uh, trite. Um, no, these were great. I think I've read the the last issue of this, 137, I think. I believe I've read that issue. At, but I think like in the last like five years, I think I read like a reprint of it or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't. Uh, um, so we're getting closer to like issues... That I may like Days of Future Past. I've definitely read. I think you owned those. We'll talk about that when we cover those issues. Okay, I didn't remember it until I read it this time. Um, but until I reread them, I won't know for sure. But so these, I had definitely not read the first. I definitely had not read issue one thirty three. Um, and most of these issues, I think I read the one where they're on the moon fighting. That seemed familiar to me. But mm-hmm. maybe it's just I know it so well from other things that I just think I've read it. Um, I had not read these issues before, Kevin, and I was so blown away by how good they were. Um, you know, I'd heard of, I mean, I knew Phoenix dies, right, at some mm-hmm. point. And I'd sure. also heard the term Dark Phoenix. Like, that's one of those things that just gets said all the time, like even like sure. as a reference or a joke or something. A- anytime like, a character goes evil, they're dark, you know, dark be- Captain America or whatever. 
Yeah. And, um, or sometimes they'll even say they went dark Phoenix. Like sometimes even that's yeah. used as a term. And uh, so I knew that was coming. Right. And they've been hinting all along about Phoenix's increasingly unstable amounts of power and stuff like that. And she's had moments of weakness of evil. So I knew they were foreshadowing it, but like when it finally started to happen, it happened so quickly that somehow Kevin, I was still surprised. Like I was still like, Oh my gosh, already she's gone already. Like, I, I feel like she hasn't been with us that long. I knew the issues we were reading this week covered the death of Phoenix. So I was expecting her to go dark. I do also think it went fast, but I don't think I was surprised by it happening. I was just surprised. Uh, and I was like, oh, and now we're here. It's I mean, I was it's like one minute they've defeated the Hellfire team. The next minute they're fighting Dark Phoenix. I like went literally one minute later. Yeah, I know that. Yes. Um, when Dark Phoenix emerges, and I also did not realize that Dark Phoenix would just declare herself to be Dark Phoenix. That's I just like I don't expect mm -hmm. Darth Vader to say now I declare Star Wars. Uh, I did not expect Dark Phoenix to just to say the name, but it was kind of an awesome moment. And um, but I felt kind of sad. I was like, uh oh, she's not long now for this story. And it really, it really wrecked me. I could only imagine what it would have been like to be an invested X Men fan at this time reading these issues. It must have just been devastating. Yeah, I, it's so hard for me to forget what it's like when deaths felt more permanent. Yeah. Because uh, even reading this, I'm like, I know she's come back twice since this right, uh, right, storyline. Right. Yeah. So the death didn't impact me as much as maybe it should have. Her going dark, I couldn't help but imagine like reading the story month to month without knowing what was coming and being like, oh man, now they have to, now she's gone. She's like cosmically powerful and they have to fight her. This is so outside. Like the only way they've defeated things like this in the past is with Phoenix. Yeah. The way they defeat Dark Phoenix is they'd be like, Phoenix, you do this. Yeah, it was like a really interesting, it's like, oh, this feels like it's breaking their own rules in an exciting way. It yeah. would be like if Professor X went evil and just tried to manipulate everybody yeah. on Earth. I'm sure that's happened. But like, it's, it's I, I, was very... like I was like really excited. I mean, it's been so long since a superhero story grabbed me. You know, I was like thrilled. Yeah. It's just very funny that somebody who can devour a star is going up against the guy who, like shoots lasers out of his eyes. Oh yeah, that's like, like it the, seems it's a mismatch. That's always the sort of problem with superhero comics is you get invested in them as people, and then yeah. their powers are almost incidental. Like the yeah. more popular the person, like who's the leader of the Fantastic Four? <laughs> Stretchy guy. It's like why? <laughs> why? <Yeah. laughs> um, but it's just the personalities are independent of their their power level. Yeah. Um, do you Let's, want to talk about this first issue though? This Wolverine issue? Yeah. So this is so issue 133, as I said, ended with uh, 132 ended with Wolverine uh, uh, declaring that the Hellfire Club had taken their best shot and now it's his turn. Um, and so this issue is maybe half Wolverine kicking butt. Yeah. The first half is just Wolverine on his own, sneaking around, taking out guards and man, is it, and it's, it's man, is it fun. And I have to imagine it's kind of like the arrival it's the it's the arrival of a star, right? Like this is now this is going to become one of the most popular characters in the Marvel universe, and this is kind of his first time truly taking center stage for a while. Yeah, uh, it's also interesting. He still doesn't have like his healing factor. He gets shot at one point, and he has to like think to himself, like, "Oh, it grazed me. It, it barely hit me. If it hit me square, I'd be done. I'd be done." Which is like, no, you wouldn't. You'd get right back up. But at this point, his healing factor either didn't exist or was very minimal. Right. It was more because it, it was more like it would take a couple of days instead of a couple of weeks to get better from something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he has not recovered from any fatal wounds yet. 
Yeah. He got like burned alive, but like, like it seemed like just roast his clothes and his skin a little bit. He has not like had. Yeah. He's not been turned into a skeleton uh, or anything like happens in modern comics. I like this version of Wolverine better. I like a Wolverine that feels killable. Um, he's so happy doing this. Like he feels like unleashed. Um, like he can, because the odds are so high against him, he can just be dastardly and brutal and violent. And he looks happy. Like he's, this is his element hunting and just taking down these guys with no mercy. I love that. He's smiling. I, I assume this is John Byrne really pulling the strings on Wolverine here. We don't, we don't know that, but like, mm-hmm. this is a joyful, uh, uh, first half of the issue. Yeah, knowing Byrne loved Wolverine so much, it seems like he would have at least pitched this as a direction for the story to go. Yeah, there's also just fun, like he's sort of using how terrifying he seems to to psych out some of the guys with like powerful weapons. Um, and but he also hits moments like where he has to like run across the dance floor of a big party. And he's like, if I do that, everyone's going to attack me. How, like he does hit elements where it's like, oh, this is not a place where I'm set. I'm not prepared for this. What do I do now? Yes. Um, He's not like all really powerful. Fun. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, the, based sort of on what, our, what's based happening. On, oh yeah. Go ahead. No, no, you go based on nah, your, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> it seemed like you had something. I'm, no, I'm moving I'll br- on. So if I'll bring, you bring it up say, later. I'll bring it up later. Now. I'll bring it up later. All right. So finally at the end of it, right, I was going to say uh, everything's uh, wrapped up. Power pack is fun. No, that is not what you were going to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say, based on the Claremont interview that we just released last week, mm-hmm. um, I was so impressed with his like memory for detail. I think we said this in our outro. Claremont is like interviewing you know, a baseball player who can still remember what pitch was thrown to him 20 years before. More sports metaphors, folks. Look, at, we're a lot, a lot tougher than we thought. And uh, yeah, I'm sure every, every little thing like Wolverine being brutal, being sort of handily taking care of two stray guards, but then being stymied by a dance floor was a thing that Claremont or Byrne, but I can imagine Claremont carefully considering to keep the pace of the book. Like that level of minutia, I think is his passion. Like those kind of little plot problems. Anyway. Uh, While this is going on, the Hellfire Club has the other X-Men captured and they've got Cyclops in a really cool uh, Ruby Quartz mask. That's really fun. Uh, And they're also having fun like showing off um, what Jean Grey sees, like what her, yes. her vision of this world is. She's imagining herself to be her own ancestor, Lady Grey. And so she's seeing like uh, like colonial era versions of the X-Men. And yeah. she doesn't recognize them as her friends. She recognizes them as like thieves and scoundrels that are her enemies. Uh, and then Cyclops uh, um, enters like a psychic link they had, had attached. I uh, love stuff happened like this. Pan- off panel, I guess, but they have a psychic connection and he uses that to infiltrate her mind to sort of try to win her back to the side of the angels. Yeah. um, The logic, I get a little confused here, but somehow Jason Wingard, who's truly the mutant mastermind has initially hypnotized Jean Grey, but then through a combination of Cyclops going into the astral plane via his, like basically his love connection with Jean and then also, I guess somehow just her, she's going to break free of that bond at some point. He mastermind has like has a device that ha- lets him put illusions into her brain. Okay, that's the Emma revealed that next issue. Yes, yeah, we that's revealed later on because they they say like he shouldn't have this power is mentioned throughout while this is going on, but he is casting illusions into her brain 
So in that way, he is basically uh, given himself telepathic powers. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Cyclops kind of goes into the brain and fights Jason Wingard and Jason Wingard kills Cyclops in the brain, which uh, is how this issue ends. This issue ends with Wolverine getting beat down and Cyclops seemingly dead because of a psychic attack. Yeah. And, and there's also this fun moment to the X-Men. All that happened is Cyclops was standing there and all of a sudden he fell on the ground dead. Yes. Um, they would never kill a, a founding member of the X-Men, so we know that's not going to stick. There's absolutely no way that somebody who was one of the original X-Men would get murdered, so we can we don't have to worry about that. So yeah. the next issue, the Hellfire Club get taken down. Basically, at the beginning of the next issue, and Kevin, did I miss something? Phoenix is just free of the mental link. Yes, we don't know that initially. Um, we don't know. We don't know that even but- here. She's free, and she says later on, uh, you killed Cyclops thinking that would be my last. By doing that, you'd have me uh, Capture, body and soul. Fully. But seeing the man I loved shocked me out of your control. Right. Um, so she's faking it at the beginning. Or, or whether or not she's faking it or not, she's resting control in the beginning. And by the time Wolverine bursts in, having defeated all the guards that were attacking him off panel, she is... Uh, working for the X-Men, she tosses Wolverine aside, but is secretly using that as a distraction to remove Cyclops's Ruby Quartz mask. Right. So at the beginning of this next issue is basically the X-Men triumphant. They rise up and once Phoenix is free of Mastermind's control, they make quick work of the Hellfire Club. And we sort of get an issue of the Hellfire Club getting the crap beat out of them, which will also like introduces us to the, their powers and stuff like that, which... No, we learned all their powers a couple issues ago, and they took down the X-Men. Okay, but we get another little tour of it. We see them all. Yes. We, we see all their powers defeated. When they defeated the X-Men, each one showed that's off right, their that's individual right. we power. That's right. the mass power and the robot power and the Shaw's yeah. whatever energy absorbing. Okay, yeah, but right. But this right, time, right. the X-Men know about those powers and are able to, like, the X-Men are just better fighters. So now that they know what they're up against, they got no problem taking these guys. And it's like Sebastian Shaw is probably the toughest one because you can't hit him. Yeah. Um, but uh, they they handle him even. So this is like a fun issue of the X-Men being triumphant and just beating the crap out of these bad guys. I mean, Cut. really, this Hellfire story is was long. This is like four or five issues, this storyline. For this era of comics, that's that's huge. And when we talked to Claremont, he talked about like he, they were pushed to do one and two issue storylines. And even though this wasn't announced as like part one of five, it feels like that. It feels like this Hellfire story went on and on and on and on. It didn't feel like a couple different storylines stitched together. I mean, there was two, right? There's the Hellfire Club. Uh, them invading the Hellfire Club was like the second part of this, but it was there's all the sort Hellfire of Club. Yeah, there's the Hellfire, the initial Hellfire Club story with Dazzler, and then this is like the X Men coming back for revenge. So yeah. Loosely, that's two different stories, but they're right next to each other, so it feels like one long one. Yeah. Um, a fun little yeah. thing here is we see Beast at Avengers Mansion. Beast, the original. Like, Hank McCoy, original founding member of the X-Men, is now on the Avengers, gets an alert that there's trouble. And he by the bulletin that he gets, the X-Men are being presented as the villains. And so still loyal to his old team, he deletes that bulletin and goes in himself to investigate so that his team doesn't become an enemy of the Avengers. Right? Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's right. He doesn't want the Avengers to attack. I don't know if they mentioned he deletes in this issue, but it is revealed he deleted the alert. It's, shown in, a, definitely... it's shown in a very like half panel thing where it says like, Erase tape. Oh, erase tape. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is spelled out later 
very clearly. But yeah, so the Beast decides, I know the X-Men aren't bad guys. Instead of getting caught up in this good guys fighting good guys till we straighten it out, I'm just going to go help them. Now, the end of this issue, where, I, it makes oh. me it makes me miss this era where like now everyone who's ever been an X-Men stays an X-Men forever. Like Beast eventually comes back to the X-Men and he's like just basically never an Avenger again. Yeah. Um, the guys who are in the champions, Angel and Iceman. Uh, and obviously that's a lame team, but like they were kind of doing their own thing. They're back on the X-Men. Everyone's back on the X-Men. You become an X-Men, you're an X-Men for life. But there's something fun about like, oh, we've got like graduates out there in the world doing other things. Yeah. They can get pulled in every now and then, but aren't with us 24-7. That's a really fun thing that has been lost. That's all. Yeah, I, I really was excited to see Beast still loyal to his old team. Um, now, this issue where the X-Men are triumphant over Hellfire, um, to me, has a tremendous ending. Like an ending sequence here, which is where Phoenix is unleashed. Kevin, are you, is there something else you yes, want to yes, talk yes. about first? Uh, no, I, I think also think the, the the defeat of Mastermind is really brutal. It's like something out of a Swamp Thing comic. That's what I meant. Like, oh, okay, um, great. The final thing is Phoenix, who has been like manipulated and owned and seduced by Jason Wingard, which is really Mastermind. She's now free, and so she wants revenge. And you can feel the anger of someone who's been manipulated and maybe even like heartbroken. I mean, like also, she's also sexually harassed. Yeah, she's been harassed, perhaps assaulted. Yeah, um, assaulted. That's the better word for it. Uh, yeah, and he's and been so making out with her nonstop. I think later it's retroactively said that they sleep together. I think not now. I mean, that is not said now, but I think in a later. It's the sort of thing in comics: characters never have sex, and never have ever had sex. Right, right. You right. want to imagine it like it's never said, and it's never. Uh, like at this point, like until like the nineties characters aren't shown as like sexually active. There was a recently a storyline with Spider-Man where they're like, Oh, he never had sex with Gwen Stacy, even though they were like a serious relationship for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, they probably did, but they were in college. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe not, but probably yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. Probably they but did. It was never shown in the comic and it was never implied in the comic, but it was also in the seventies, a comic book for kids. Yes. They exactly. weren't going to do that. I, I bring this up to say that, Phoenix's revenge of, yes. uh, is you as the reader, you're like, oh my gosh, Jason Wingard, you have messed with the wrong hero. Yeah. Similar to like Wolverine turning to the camera and posing, you know, now it's my turn. Phoenix looking at Jason Wingard and saying, your power is nothing. I'm like, oh, this guy's about to get effed up. I mean, yeah. and I was, Claremont and Byrne had me in their hands. You know what I mean? Like I was so... <laughs> this this story worked for me every which way it was supposed to. I was like, oh my God, here it comes. This made me feel like I was reading an Alan Moore Swamp Thing comic. Yes, I totally agree, uh, Kevin. It it it, it was it like, felt like a revenge, a, a cosmic story, revenge. Like, yeah. Like you went up against an elemental power and it you're gonna lose. What she kind of says to Mastermind is basically like, you guys have unleashed, you know, you you threatened me so much that in order to beat you, I had to unleash my power to defeat you, which I have now done. But the bad news for you is this power has now been unleashed. It's evil. You know, her like speech balloons are now outlined in black and the, like the lettering mm -hmm. is kind of wavy and stuff. And what she does to him 
it's also Sandman-esque, although you could say that Sandman-esque right, right, yes. is, is Swamp Thing-esque because he's inspired by Alan Moore. Yep. But she takes his spirit. She's like, you want power? I mean, this reminds me of what Sandman does to the writer when the writer has imprisoned Calliope. It's like, you mm-hmm. want ideas? I will give you ideas in abundance. And what uh, Dark, or sorry, what Phoenix says to Mastermind is, you want power? I'll give you power. And she turns him into a god, which he's yeah, not mentally he's, ready for, and it fries his brain. He's a human. He can't handle that. And he just, uh, and it's really fun. Like they zoom in on his eye and they cut to like this cosmic image of him. And then they zoom out of his eye and he's just like a shell of a man. I don't know what happens to mastermind after this, but it makes me think like you could do some really cool stories with somebody who's like touched cosmic godhood. Yes. I don't know if anything like that was done with him. Uh, I'm not gonna look it up. Just, just like any, just like the great Kirby stories. And I um, am so happy uh, that we got to tell Claremont, Kevin, the thing that you observed, which is that these X-Men stories were like the best of those Kirby FFs. Um, Every little panel, you could be like, this could be a comic. This could be a comic. Mm -hmm. This could be a story. Um, And yeah, that's one of them. And so, okay, she brutally tortures Mastermind. He deserves it. It's weirdly satisfying. Kevin, how does this issue end? It ends with another surprise turn. Right. Like they leave and she's sort of hiding something from Scott Cyclops and he knows it, but he, you know, isn't going to bother her about it right this minute. Good, good decision there on his uh, yeah, part. Good call. They get into their little uh, shuttle that they had hidden in a lake or something or in the bay. Uh, they climb into it. And uh, as they're taking off, uh, Phoenix goes dark Phoenix. She doesn't call herself dark Phoenix here. No longer am I the woman you knew. I am fire. I am life incarnate. Now and forever, I am Phoenix. And she basically blows up their ship. And that's how the issue ends. It's amazing. Seemingly for no reason. Like she's just sort of sitting in the back and, and the bomb is ticking and then it explodes as they take off. She's flexing. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. And so we are we're the arrival of Dark Phoenix, basically. And next issue is Dark Phoenix. Yeah. You know, we're in this crazy run where every issue ends with like Cyclops dead on the floor. Wolverine yep. turning to the camera and declaring his vengeance. Uh, Phoenix emerging the, 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 and blowing up the plane. The Cyclops death cliffhanger reveal was just sort of the next panel. If you put them back to back, is just them going, oh, no, he's alive. Right, exactly. <laughs> but in terms but, of like uh, the end of an issue, it's super dramatic. Yes. Um, Some of these reveals pay off like this one. The ship is still blowing up and they're all falling to their deaths. The next issue, but the Cyclops, like Nightcrawler's like, Cyclops is dead. And then basically one second later, he goes, no, he's breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, some of these are like old adventure serials where like one episode ends with something falling off the cliff and the next episode begins with, oh, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, he's like next to me the whole time. He didn't fall. Um, So this next issue, it's titled Dark Phoenix. Yep. Like we said in our little intro, Dark Phoenix is basically a vocabulary word in comics. It is a term you use when a hero turns evil. It's also it's something we take for granted uh, in these old comics for like a great run like this is John Burns drawn every issue. There's no fill-ins. There's no, like, there's a fill-in early on in his run, but like since then he's drawn every single issue and it just makes it really sing even more when it's like consistently John Byrne throughout. I totally agree. And he's obviously completely invested. Like the art yeah. is incredible. You and I are huge fans of his FF run. I don't think he ever drew as well as he drew right here, or maybe it's Terry Austin's inks. But there's these, he's doing such cool stuff, layouts and thought process. I mean, he's not writing the stories as well. He's, and I mean, at certain points in FF, he was just doing too much probably. Yes. Uh, 
like things spinoffs and I don't know when he did Avengers West Coast. Like he he produced a ton for an artist. Yes. Um, but at this point, I think he's just doing X Men probably, and he is just giving it his all. Like it's also early in his career, right? It's not the beginning of his career. He hasn't. He's not breaking in. He's not doing Iron Fist. He's, he's established as a Team major up. talent. But he is proving himself still. It's like this, this is, is pr- basically like, okay, I've been now put on. I'm now a Let's go sports. I'm now in the starting lineup uh, for the, I've been uh, in the Chicago Bulls. Game, been in the Oscar game a couple of years, but now I want the championship. Now I'm going to show everyone I'm the best. I'm the yes. best artist there is at Marvel. I want to show I mean, it to everyone. And then, and then later on, he believes uh, I've proven that. Now I'm just going to do stuff I want to do. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that's true or not, I mean, who cares? I mean, it's as you say it, I get so excited. Like seeing, I guess let's call it John Byrne's first prime. He's got several, several huge chapters to come. But this is the arrival of John Byrne's superstar and Chris Claremont's superstar. Mm-hmm. And and um, it's so exciting. I mean, it's kind of parallel to Jean Grey's ascent. Uh, not that they're becoming evil, but like uh, <laughs> they're, they're flexing their power. Uh, it's really fun. So this issue, Dark Phoenix, is basically in order to defeat the Hellfire Club, she had to let this power out. And now the power rules her. And she kind of sails around the universe just sort of flexing, right? She spends the first half of the issue just like knocking the X-Men around relatively easily uh, and then flies into outer space and like destroys a universe or solar system at least. Yeah, we see a lot of the other characters of the Marvel Universe sense her power and react to how big it is. Yeah, it's just fun. There's a shot of the thing with shampoo on his head. I like the idea that he lathers his hairless stone body. It's a foreshadowing of Byrne doing the FF, right? I mean, we're going to get tons of fun. Yeah, yeah. John Byrne drawing the things. I'm not just, too far. The idea the that the thing showers is just funny to me. <laughs> that he's in there like with Pantene on his head, <laughs> throwing on a giant robe. The thing lives a funny life where it's like sometimes you're just doing things. Are you just doing this because it's funny? The idea of you showering, or did you need to shower? <laughs> so wouldn't you like hose yourself down? Or, or when you see him like in the gym, like lifting weights, it's like you sh- you're made of yeah. stone. Do you need to do those grow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, we see Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, the Silver Surfer, and the FF react to the Phoenix's uh, awesomeness. It's also kind of like the old guard of Marvel is witnessing the arrival of the new guard. In a way. Yeah. I, I, this book that we've talked about in the past has felt disconnected from the Marvel universe, like that it's off in the corner doing its own thing. Here it's reminding you, it's like, this is happening. The FF aren't dealing with it. Spider-Man's not dealing with it, but it's just as big as anything they should be dealing with. Phoenix, as you said, Kevin, destroys the solar system. Yep. She's basically hungry somehow. And so she eats a star and that causes the death of a planet. And if this had been a lifeless planet... If this had just been like her destroying a lifeless solar system, like many of them are. That's right. Uh, maybe uh, she doesn't die. Yeah. Like what, what has been said and what we heard from the horse's mouth, Claremont, and what has been said in other interviews is Byrne kind of just did this. You know, it wasn't like in the script. He just kind of, he's a co-writer and yeah, he, as an example of her power, put this in there in a planet dying. They cleared it with their editor, Jim Salakrip, their immediate editor. But then once the head editor, Jim Shooter, read this issue, he read all the issues, on the last day before it goes to press, he was like, oh, there must be consequences for killing a planet. I think it's when he read the finale of the storyline. He's like, but you killed somebody two issues ago. Okay, yeah. You killed not just somebody, you killed a planet. 
of innocence. Okay, but I guess we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. This issue, yes. the one called Dark Phoenix, ends with the X-Men realizing we have to take care, we have to stop her. She's coming back. Yeah. <laughs> is what Cyclops realizes because he's still got this connection. I can sense her in my mind through this psionic rapport we share. She's returning to Earth and she's hungry. Uh, and that's scary. Yeah, we've just seen that she basically is a silver surfer-like cosmic figure, and she's coming back for them. They have nothing in their arsenal to deal with her. It's it's very we also exciting. Saw, we also saw the the what are they called? The Shire. Uh, how, what are they? How, what's his name? How do you pronounce their name? I don't know how to pronounce anything. The Shire. The bird. Yeah, yeah. The Shire. The Queen Alondra. Queen Alondra's race. Yes. They see this happening. They're like, we also want. We have got to. We've got to destroy this phoenix. Uh, that we we knew was out there and we didn't do anything about it. So now it's our responsibility to kill it. So that's also happening. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a great issue. It's a very interesting issue. It feels very different than everything else around it. Since it's half of it is just Gene Gay going around being cosmic. Yeah. And again, it feels like an Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman, like that sort of like. Yeah. Just like we're going to take a little journey in the astral level all of a sudden. Yeah. It's like, we're not doing a superhero comic this month. This is something else. Yeah, like in the Swamp Thing at one point, he starts traveling via, his spirit leaves his body and travels via plant life and then arrives in Pluto. At -hmm. one point in the Swamp Thing where it's like, Pluto? Swamp Thing is like supposed to just be in the swamps of New Orleans, like walking around, taking care of local bad guys. Now he's on Pluto with like weird blue fungus on him. This is like one of those moves. This feels like an Avengers story, at least, if not a, like maybe more of a Silver Surfer thing. If it's going to be in the Marvel Universe, this does not feel like uh, an X-Men story uh, prior to this. Now, of course it does. It's the classic X-Men story. Next issue is called Child of Light and Darkness, and it's the X-Men faced with the task of containing their god teammate. Indeed, they even put a little caption box in the front. Don't miss this special issue containing more shocks and surprises than ever before. Uh, they're aware, uh, Shooter, Salakrup, Marvel, that like this is a big deal. I mean, they must have brought Stan Lee out to be like, we need some uh, hyped, can't, we need some hyped caption boxes <laughs> for the cover, Stan. What, what should we do? They, I mean, they can't have imagined how big it was, but they knew they had something special here, and they are trying to get everyone to read it. They're trying to sell this, this thing they know can sell. So the first half of the story is basically we see the president saying she must be stopped. We see Queen Lalandra saying she must be destroyed. And then we see the beast working on a little device. The beast who, you know, we saw a previous issue has come to the X-Men to see what's up is working on some device that they're building to try to contain her. Right. Look, I'll believe that Phoenix could destroy a star and, and wipe out a solar system in the blink of an eye. I have trouble imagining that the beast can use his foot that well <laughs> to help build machines. It just, that, it doesn't have a thumb. I just don't buy it. His hand is it. free. I, do you need to use your foot beast? But uh, there he is using it. Yeah. It just doesn't look comfortable. I just don't buy it. Yeah, Maybe it. like it's, just it's wait, most... a, wait a second and turn that screwdriver a little bit later. Like, do you really need to lift your foot up and turn that screw right now? Of all the Marvel superpowers, it's the only one that I think is baloney. <laughs> Beast's feet agility? Yeah, that's right. You don't see monkeys. I mean, they use their feet a little bit, but not as much as they use their hands. Beast uses his feet all the time. It's, if nothing else, it's a flex. 
This is a funny little anyway. exchange between Beast and Cyclops. Beast goes, by George, I've got it. Cyclops goes, got what, Hank? Your basic mnemonic scrambler. Slap this on Jeannie's head and she shouldn't be able to think a coherent thought, much less read minds or throw telekinetic force bolts. Good work, Beast. It's <laughs> <laughs> very fun. Yeah. Beast is I don't, a fun character. Stan giving the Beast and making him over-eloquent is a very, very smart move. and makes him a very fun character. Yeah. Uh, Jean then goes to visit her childhood home. I mean, she's uh, taking like a tour of her life in this new, it's, she's not really Jean anymore, right? She's like this new creature that's just in Jean's body. I was thinking that too. It's interesting reading this, knowing what I know about how they bring Jean back, the Kurt Busaic idea that this was never Jean Grey. This was an alien that had replaced her and like absorbed her personality and just believed she was Jean. A sort of a Which gestation thing for also, the Phoenix. Also very Swamp Thing. That is exactly what Alan Moore says about Swamp Thing and his that, that oh, what's the Swamp Thing's civilian identity? He, the man who- uh, Alec, Swamp- Alec Holland? Yes, Alec Holland, you know, became Swamp Thing in a tragic accident. And then Alan Moore decided, no, Alec Holland died in that accident. And the plants of the swamp absorbed, were tricked into yeah. believing they were Alec Holland. Well, that's how Kurt sort of got away from this idea of like, well, now Jean Grey didn't kill anybody. The Phoenix killed people. We can bring Jean back and she's not a murderer. Right, yeah. And uh, that's his way around it. And if you read the story thinking that, it does fit perfectly. Like Kurt is really smart. This is a young Kurt's idea, but it's like, oh yeah, it doesn't, it feels like this is somebody who believes she is Jean and has a little bit of Jean in her, but feels like a completely different thing. Yes. And Um, you know, when she says, I'm not Jean anymore, it's like, yeah, you never really were. But as you're reading uh, this story the first time, what you believe is yes. that Jean has been corrupted by this power. Yes. Um, and so she visits her parents and she's scary. Uh, she flies away maybe so she won't hurt them. Yes, they're also scared of her. And and they're, they've always been a little, I guess, off put by her powers. Um, now they're more so because she is terrifying and speaking in like an evil voice. Uh, but yeah, she leaves the house and the X-Men attack. They were waiting outside for her. Um, and so they get, they slap this little device on her head. And now we get an X-Men versus Phoenix battle. Yeah, this, this device contains most of her powers. It minimizes what she can do. Um, so, But she still has some power left and she fights them. But now she's kind of like, she's on the level where she can, it's kind of an even match. Like now it's just sort of a, a regular slugfest. Whereas last issue, she could have wiped them out with a thought. She's, you know, Storm has a chance against her now, but not really. Wolverine tries to kill her, but at the last second, just can't do it. Because Gene basically begs her and him to do it. And that, like, softens him. Yeah, and it has the opposite effect. He was going to do it, but then when he sees Gene, knows there's a little bit of her in there, he can't kill her. And that gives her a window where she rips the headband off herself. And so she's about to destroy them. And then Cyclops walks out and just tries talking to her. It's love, Kevin, the ultimate, the ultimate weapon. And it almost works, right? Like he is wearing her down. We see the Avenger ship kind of coming in the background. Uh, was it the Avenger ship? No, just some other, some Warren Worthington and uh, a Quinjet type vehicle. Right. Uh, Professor got, X arrives. Everyone's got their own jets that they can fly around everywhere. Uh, yeah. And it's working, but as it's working, Professor X really makes a huge mistake and attacks Gene from behind. He blows it. Yeah. And now she's like, Oh, F you guys. I'm going to take you all down. 
So now it's Professor X versus Phoenix in a mental battle. Uh, and X yeah. wins, but it is implied that he only wins because there was also an internal struggle within Phoenix where Jean Grey was sort of the the remaining good spirit of Jean Grey was also battling Phoenix from within. Yeah, that's nice. It's sort of the opposite of what often happened in the old FF comics where uh, anything suited, Reed took credit for. Here's something a man is doing and we're giving credit <laughs> to the, the female character. It's nice. So Professor X text Phoenix, Jean Grey is also helping. And the Phoenix is defeated basically or at least temporarily at the end of this issue yeah and then they all disappear <laughs> it's not the first time this has happened where the x-men just vanish or somebody from the x-men just vanish uh, but it happens again and now we get into the final issue that we're going over today the seminal milestone issue the death mm -hmm. of phoenix which i believe i've read before but uh, uh i didn't remember it in great detail before reading this. The cover is always very funny because the cover has this uh, ad for a contest that covers up like the top quarter <laughs> yeah. of the, it, like this classic cover, but the first thing you see is this Marvel comic could be worth $2,500 to you. I Details know. inside. Just this garish contest. But the title yeah. on the cover is Phoenix Must Die. And then um, the internal title is The Fate of the Phoenix. The Watcher yeah, is also greeting us on the splash page. It's also, and this is something we talked about uh, on a different podcast, I guess, Will, that you and I did. We did a Marvel by the Month podcast yeah. that may or may not be out at this time. Um, and I talked about how these, these X-Men issues were 19 pages. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it when I realized that. And that's I was definitely thinking that while reading these issues, these four issues. I was like, I can't believe how There's long these 19 pages feel. And then you get this one. This is 35 pages. Yeah. And they pack a lot in here. But the, the high level of what happens in this issue is Queen Lalanda and the Shi'ar race summon the X-Men to the moon under the purview of the Watcher to sort of like execute her. Yes. Uh, having the Watcher show up at the beginning really makes this feel like a Galactus story. It, it absolutely does. And this is sort of like a trial of Galactus type of thing, which is like, Inter interstellar forces are telling Earth, you have to do something about this or we will. This is also a story steeped in the Marvel Universe, right? The Korean Skrull are present. The Watcher's present. It takes place in the blue area of the moon. Even though it is, it's very X-Men at its core, the surface, like the, 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 our drape, the stuff that's draped around it is all like classic X-Men lore, Creed versus Skrull War, Galactus, Watcher, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, and I, I forget the logic here. They're beamed to the moon, but then they're allowed to just like live in a little compound and have a night just to chill or something like that. Or, uh, before happening? they go to the, it's before they go to the moon. Okay, they they, they go. Lalandra takes them onto her ship or whatever. Says, "I'm going to kill Phoenix." Uh, Professor X, the trial by combat, uh, uh, asks for a trial by combat. Is oh, he does like a little that, Hunger right? Games move? Like, uh, let's let's do yeah. a little battle to to. And they're, that, they're allowed to do that by their culture. Yeah. And so that happens the next day. They spend a night on the ship. That's right. Okay. Because they've so, got like people waiting on them and stuff. They're not on the moon with like a bunch of servants. The Watcher's not watching. Or they're not saying the Watcher's Airbnb. Okay. Okay. Right. I remember. Sorry. I, I will confused. also say uh, we have the Beast and Angel here from the Class A X-Men. Do you think Iceman was mad when he heard about this? Yeah, of course. Why should he be left out? Yeah. I'd be super bummed if I was Iceman. Banshee, Havoc, and Polaris miss out. That sort of makes sense. But like the other founders are all there, man. 
Yeah, it's a bummer. If I was Iceman, I'd be pissed when I heard that Phoenix died and I didn't get to see it. If we had asked Claremont that, he'd be like, well, and he'd have like a 10-minute explanation <laughs> of how they justified that. If you sure. read classic X-Men, we show what Iceman is doing. <laughs> <laughs> let's get let's get down to the seminal stuff at the end here. Well, right before we talk about the seminal stuff, I do, because this is 35 pages, they spend like a page on each X-Men preparing for the fight and deciding whether or not they're going to fight. Because there's also the question of like, Maybe Jean Grey should just die and we shouldn't like, if we win, we're basically letting the Phoenix power live. Yeah. Who should we be fighting for? And they all have like, they each get a page where they think about whether or not we should do this again. This is a double sized issue all by John Byrne. So great. Uh, They all decide of course to fight, Uh, but it's just great. They spend so much time on all that. I mean, they spend like 10 pages just preparing for this battle. Yeah, it's a lot of just like sort of melodrama and internal strife and emo feeling stuff, which is, uh, man, that's X-Men. Then they basically split up to fight these guys, and they are outmatched from moment one, Will. Yeah, they're not doing well. The the X-Men are presented as very powerful, but they're also constantly being played as underdogs. And it's a a fun thread that Claremont is able to sort of balance, like that the X-Men are super powerful and can kind of handle anything. But then like every time they're in a battle, you're like, oh, they're, they're outmatched. Finally, it's down to Cyclops and Jean. Jean puts on her old Marvel Girl costume just for sentimental reasons. I mean, she's not Phoenix anymore, I guess. Oh, there's also a weird digression where Wolverine like meets the Watcher. But uh, I don't know what to say about that other than it happens. It has no bearing on the story. I it's thought just, it was going to for a bit. It's just John Byrne loving FF characters and being like, I want an FF character in this story, I bet. Maybe And Claire, Claremont too. Claremont's a big fan of those characters. Yeah, they both seem to be huge FF fans. I mean, I guess everybody was at this time. FF was still probably the biggest thing. Yeah, anybody working for Marvel in nineteen in the early 80s was a kid during Lee Kirby FF, and it probably was just like their hero, I would guess. It was the main thing Marvel did. Um, but yeah, the rest of the X-Men get taken out slowly by this, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, whatever these guys are called, the, the Shi'ar. um, yeah, but there's the Imperial Guard. That's the name they're called. Um, the Legion of Superheroes ish characters, the Imperial Guard, take them all out except for Cyclops and Marvel Girl. And so basically they're like, well, we're going to lose. Let's go out swinging. And they kind of step out. It's kind of butch and Sundance. Like they're surrounded by superior forces. They're like, let's squat in a blaze of glory. And it's what the cover shows. It kind of shows the last stand of these two characters, you know, just eye beams and throwing rocks using telekinetic powers. Like, I mean, Marvel girl without Phoenix powers is powerful, but not she's outmatched. And like the, and like the camera basically pans back away from the moon to, to the ship that is watching it. And all of a sudden the ship gets like blown up and the Phoenix has been reawakened. I think she's protecting Scott, it's implied. It's like, I have to save Scott. Yeah, I think it's like, they're going to die. And I think she's like, she lets the Phoenix out so that they will kill her. Yeah, like there's a weird little logic thing here, which is like, she decides that she can't be allowed to live. And um, so she sort of creates it so that that she has to be killed and then she kills herself. And she also like gives the X-Men permission to let her die. Like, it's like, look, I am a threat. You have to kill me. I will kill again if you don't kill me. It's like, uh, whether or not she would have done this is unclear, but that she is, she feels like it would have happened again. She talks about like, I can't live my whole life keeping this power in check. She says it here to, 
to uh, the X-Men. So long as I live, the Phoenix will manifest itself through me. And so long as that happens, I'll eventually, inevitably, become Dark Phoenix. The Phoenix is a cosmic power. It can neither be contained nor controlled, especially by a human vessel. Return it to the cosmos, which is its home. Kill me. That's the page before it happens. Right. Uh, and, and she sort of does it to herself. There's some sort of gun that she sort of activates with her telekinetic powers. And she basically commits suicide. Yeah, some sort of, I assume it's like a watcher-like device just hanging around. Yeah, I think the watcher lives in a, in a place that other people built, but it's, anyway, it's weird. There's just and then a, we end with the recorder, a character I don't know, and the watcher sort of reminiscing about what they just saw. So the final moment is uh, Gene and Scott, right? Yeah. Um, Here's my criticism for this comic, Will, because it's the sort of comic that there's plenty of things you could criticize. I think when Gene dies... The last three panels of Cyclops is like the second to last page, Will? Yes. I think it should be silent. I think you should have just seen Scott crumble. I don't think I need those giant word balloons. Yeah, it's true. It's a bit of a Stan Lee move to lay some big balloons over that, and it might have been better just with the emotional ending. Um, kind of like the ending we saw in the the um, old X-Men where uh, Sun Sunfire is watching yes. the death of somebody, and he just silently looks over the body for the last three panels, the death of his father, I think. I just think this art is very moving and the, the dialogue has been very moving and we're going to have this last page with the watcher sort of talking about it. Uh, we could have a moment of silence for Cyclops. Anyway, that's my one criticism for the first, whatever, 34 issues that uh, Claremont did. But it is um, 37, still a massive, it's know, a like heartbreaking moment. The lovers say goodbye yes. to each other. She pushes him away and she kills herself. Scott didn't want to give up. The X-Men didn't want to give up, but she made the decision for them. It certainly is a death. And I guess I can't say what I would have thought at the time. Definitely a kid, me probably would have bought it. But even reading this now, I'm like, well, she'll be back. Yeah. Like, yeah. I bet she'll be back within a year. Now that she isn't back in a year, if I was reading this comic and like I, we went on and on and on, it's like, oh, she's not coming back. That's crazy. In this moment, I just wouldn't buy it. I just wouldn't buy that she was gone forever. I do kind of wish she never came back just because this story is so moving and powerful. I I don't know. I I totally understand the desire to and but I don't know. That yeah, I think it's like Gwen Stacy coming back. It's just like some things are so traumatic, it's almost disrespectful to undo them. I think death should be very, very rare in Marvel Comics. Uh, other than like ones that get completely undone the next issue with Nightcrawler going, Oh, he's breathing. Uh, other than those deaths, I think deaths should be very rare. And then when they happen, they should just stick with them. They should be like, we killed this character. Yeah. It's just very hard to do that when it's an IP that you want to make movies about, I guess. But yeah, it's just like, don't kill a character unless you're ready to do it. Unless you're really done with this character. But anyway, uh, yeah. Kevin and I basically started reading comics as kids, not too long after this issue came out, but we did not read this issue when it came out. But it, there was seismic... Uh, tremors from this for like we would hear about the death of phoenix people would mm -hmm. talk about it other fans would talk about it it was mentioned in letters like it was a just a momentous occasion in marvel comics I mean, it definitely feels like this is the moment where the x-men like the, the x-men were characters that show showed up in other books but this is the time where it's like oh no they're major players yeah this is their arrival on the main marvel stage they're equal players they, to the avengers and the ff and spider-man and all that if they show up in an FF comic now, it's not to be help sell X-Men comics. It's because the X-Men are so cool. You want them in your FF comic. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, really, you could say that the X-Men in a way begin here, even though this is a peak. But Kitty mm-hmm. Pride arrives next issue, and then we sort of get into the full Claremont era after this, even though this is part of it. Uh, yeah, this is the, the violent, exciting birth of the modern X-Men. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was so excited to have read it. I can't believe I hadn't read it before. It just it's it's one of the best superhero comic arcs of all time, without question. Yeah, I'll say I think I've read it before, but then I like things like this last page with the recorder and the watcher talking. I don't remember. So it's yeah, like little... how would I not remember things like that? Yeah. I feel like but so I feel like maybe I just remember the gist of the story. So maybe I just like read recaps of it or something. Maybe the cover is so were... iconic, it feels like something I've read, but I've seen the cover a million times. Yeah. Maybe you read it like in between sports workouts. And so your brain was kind of, you know. Yeah, that's probably it. Probably um, what during a, my ultimate fighting uh, training. Hey, uh, our, we got a lot of X-Men fans listening to us on these episodes. So please write in screw it comics at Gmail to tell us what you thought of these issues and what's your relationship to this story. And do you think Phoenix should have been brought back or not? We want to, we want to hear it. We're blown away by the story. We want to hear what you think. Screw it comics at Gmail. And speaking of that, Kev, maybe we should take a break and then get to some email. Yeah, let's do a few emails. We went long, so we'll do a few. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks in advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. All right, we're back. So we've got a ton of email. I don't know how much we have time for. So uh, uh, luckily, I actually... We might have to do just a mailbag mailbag episode at some point. Eh, We'll catch up. I'm not worried. I I read through them, so I've kind of put these in an order that I'm going to go uh, through. And then once we feel like we've done enough, we we can call it. Corey Mintz emailed us September 23rd. And this is interesting because I missed it completely. Maybe you caught it, Will. You're smart sometimes. Sometimes I'm smart, yeah. Uh, so Corey Mintz emailed about the Proteus story. Yeah. Uh, Hi, Milk Sops. I've been enjoying your Mutants and Mailbags episodes. Your engaging episode on X-Men 125 to 128 skipped a detail I feel is important in that story. Moira's son Proteus is the result of a sexual assault by her ex-husband. Oh, Did you geez. catch that? I had forgotten it when we went over, but now I'm remembering it. Yes. Uh, It's not something I noticed or understood when I read this at age 14. Uh, Claremont doesn't use the word rape, but I think that's the writer's intention is clear. The backstory is that when Moira told Joe she wanted a divorce, he physically and sexually assaulted her. If you wanted to stretch for allegorical meaning, you could see the story about Moira and the X-Men eventually concluding that Proteus must be killed as Moira struggling with a choice over a very late-term abortion. Here's the relevant dialogue that confirms the backstory. X-Men 127, Moira says, I'm here to give you a warning, Joe. When we said our fond farewells, in quotes, in New York all those years ago, you didn't just put me in a hospital for a week, you left me pregnant. And then X-Men 128, Proteus says, an act of hate and violence created me. 
Oh yeah, there's no no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. I definitely did not catch it as an age 46 year old man. I didn't catch that subtext. Maybe I'm reading them too fast, but uh, it is. I mean, it's got to be subtle if it's a comic that is still mostly going to kids. But yeah, there's no question that's what was intended there. Uh, uh, I don't know if this is meant to be an allegory for uh, abortion, but it certainly is dealing with the ramifications of a rape. No question. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good call, um, Corey. Yeah, we 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 skipped over that, and that's crucial. Maybe we were just scared of the emotional sadness of that story. It's another example of the X Men going to emotional places that other titles were scared to go to. Yeah, it, it makes that story even better knowing that. Yeah, Joshua Pilch emails in about our shapeshifter discussion. Will do you remember our shapeshifter discussion? Yes, I do. The- we talked about how whether shapeshifters and stretchy characters, what the overlap was. Yeah. Uh, in their power sets. Yes, I do remember uh, that. Joshua emails in, uh, a listener asked an excellent question about how much can a stretchy hero like Mr. Fantastic shapeshift and how much can a shapeshifter like Mystique stretch? My immediate reaction was that I always thought Mystique only mimicked the appearance of real people she saw in the world. If that's the case, I think the limits for stretchy powers are dictated by how tall any real person is. But then I started thinking, could a shapeshifter just make up a new person from scratch? To do that, I would think the shapeshifter would have to be a pretty good at live figure drawing. I mean, think about it. If you're going to create a new human being from scratch, you would not only need extensive knowledge of human anatomy, especially facial anatomy, but also how to representationally depict that anatomy on your own body. Maybe Mystique does have the ability to transform in, into an invented person, but she she's worried she would come up looking like that Jesus painting whose face got all messed up in the restoration. <laughs> uh, I guess my point is if she could do that, then I also think she could turn into a 500-foot-tall messed-up Jesus face if she wanted to. What do you think? Is my logic sound? Can shapeshifters make up new people? Your panty waist, Josh. It's a good question. It does feel like kind of a, a boundary they might put on Mystique just to limit her, that she can only do what she sees. That feels yeah. like kind of a good superhero limit. In the movies, she at least in the original movies, two movies, she only shapeshifts into people she sees. Or like she's like even next to, like she almost needs to be next to them to get it. But it is very funny, like a non-artistic shapeshifter trying to look like somebody else. Like sometimes when I try to imagine what people look like, even people I know very well, I'm like, I can't really picture them that well. I got like a gist, I'd recognize them if I saw them. Yeah. But if someone asked me like describe, like even like your wife in detail for like a, a, a mugshot drawing or whatever, like a crime portrait, I'd be like, I don't know how to describe somebody. Yeah. So if I was a shapeshifter, my version of people would be very indistinct, very flat, I feel like. It'd be very hard. I think it is an unknown ability of all shapeshifters to be uh, brilliant artists. Let's give Mystique a comic book and see what happens. She's had comic books, Well, Come on. Marvel Comics. Everybody's had an ongoing. Let her make one. Oh, make a comic book. Okay. Let the character draw a comic book. I see. I thought you meant let her star in one. No, commission her within the Marvel Universe to draw a Marvel comic. Justin Bridge also emailed about this. He's emailed us before many times. Justin's a nice guy. Uh, I insulted his emails at some point and he got mad at me, mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so. Uh, he talks about Mystique versus Mr. Fantastic. I went to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe to see what the power descriptions for the two characters are. Basically, he's ultra elastic and stretchy and can alter his form significantly. He can become basic shapes or stretch to a ridiculous degree, but only like, say, pizza dough. He can't change color or anything else. Mystique, on the other hand, can change the atoms in her body and whatever clothes she's wearing. She can replicate another being so perfectly that even fingerprints and retina patterns can be duplicated. However, she can't change, increase, alter her mass. She could appear to be a tall man, say Colossus, but that would put a strain on her and she couldn't maintain the form for long. I guess it'd be like a blowfish. She'd look bigger, but be more hollow. 
Hmm. The handbook points out that body types too different from her normal type, put too much of a strain on her. The greater the difference, the less she can hold it. The handbook also points out that she hasn't exhibited converting to animal forms or inanimate objects, but this was written in the 80s, so this may have changed. It goes further to suggest that this is because it would likely alter her internal organs too much, opening her up to injury or death. So this is very different from Mr. Fantastic, whose organs all possess his elasticity. Side note, there was a Mystique comic where she was an agent of Professor X and showed that she could make glasses or other accessories from the same material that nails and hair were made from, which is pretty cool and I suppose consistent with her reshaping her atoms. That Marvel handbook was really fun. Yeah. They really thought through that stuff in a fun way for comics nerds. Uh, and comic nerds, mostly we're talking about you, Justin, because uh, you've read them all. And <laughs> Yeah. You know, we mostly mean Justin Bridge, the comics nerd. Yeah. Uh, Justin sent us a bunch of emails. Uh, I'm going to go through a couple other points that he mentions. He, uh, I I made fun of the new warriors at some point, Will, which I frequently do. He got yes. mad at me for that. They're a Ditko creation. He, he, he gets mad at me saying, Speedball is a founding member and Ditko co-created Marvel teen heroes. Under the Heinz brother criteria, I believe these all count as Ditko creations. I can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. Uh, and then he talks about how good those early issues were. And I agree, but I just also don't want to read it. I'm never going to get around to reading the new warriors. I know people loved it. I just think I missed it. I think it's, I think it's a comic I would read and be like, yeah, I guess I can see why people liked it. I mean, I'm Maybe never going to get to it. I just got to the X-Men. There's no way I'm going to get to new <laughs> warriors. Let me read Grunewald's Captain America before I worry about yeah. uh, Mark Bagley and Fabian's new warriors run. Then he said, why is the flash such an entry character? We were talking about how a lot of people love the flash. Yes. Over at DC. For me, I like Wally's appearances in jail in Europe. But his year one arc is what sucked me in and through the uh, and then through the flash into the rest of DC. You guys should do a good flash run sometimes. I think both Wade and Jeff Johns had incredible runs. Uh, but yeah, it's just more talk about how good the flash is. And for some reason, the flash does have this ability that draws people into the DC universe. He's very cool that way. Yeah. Justin also defends Alpha Flight one more time to us. Okay. Their, Everyone, their budget. People, People do not like the fact that we think Canada spent too much money on Alpha Flight. Yeah, that's really become a flashpoint in our email. We've accused the Canadian government of overspending on superheroes, which I think is the least controversial thing we've ever said. They financed the Wolverines like Adamantium Skeleton. They financed this huge, hugely powerful covert superhero group for a country I don't know, that has like a couple hundred thousand people living in it. I don't know, it's, it's nuts. I looked into the budget, the defense budget of uh, Canada <laughs> yeah. compared to America's budget. Uh, and Canada is a very big budget. It, it is one, one of the uh, top, uh, I think top five or six in the world. Okay. But like anything, America's dwarfs. Yeah. Like every other country so much so. And America didn't have an alpha flight. <laughs> they had S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> They were yeah. building flying helicarriers, which is an insane thing right. to do. Yeah. But that's the most America did. Canada has to do a fraction of that, right? Otherwise, they're overspending. Yeah, the most Canada should have is Puck. Like, that should be the extent <laughs> of their superhero budget. Yeah. Anyway, Justin continues to be mad about that, and he will continue to be mad about it. I don't think we're relenting on that. We've, we get, we we're get not. texts on it. We get Instagram comments. People do not like our takes. It's funny the things we say that people latch onto. The Enforcers television show, yes. the fact that Ditko created everything, and yes. our criticism of Canada's superhero budget, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where we're making our impact. Uh, Justin, also on some more recent stuff. Uh, Dazzler is an incredibly powerful mutant. I think I dismissed her powers. Yeah, you were talking about they're just making light and who cares. But then Justin doesn't really convince me here, but here's what he says. 
She absorbs sound and converts it to light. When she was introduced, she could only generate light effects, although she could use it to emotionally sway people. I don't remember if that was conscious or unconscious on her part. Later, she develops the power to create laser beams and hard light beams as well. And I'm not saying it's no power. It just feels like not much power. Absorbing sound is cool. I love characters with limited powers. I mean, Cypher is one of my favorite. He just talks. Wearing roller skates just makes you look less powerful, whether that's fair or not. Even if Dark Phoenix, yeah. for some reason, had roller skates, it would make her look like less intimidating. Yeah. I mean, just like when you're next to Storm and, and Phoenix and your power is like, I make light. You just, yeah. I don't know. She's not powerful. I mean, either does Kitty Pride. that argument. Walking through walls does not seem that powerful either. I'm not yeah. saying it doesn't make you a great character. Uh, he tells us a little bit about Mastermind. He's one of the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutant members. Uh, he looks like an old French inspector, uh, but obviously can make himself look way better. Uh, he was also maybe one of the first mutants Marvel killed off with a legacy virus, which is a storyline we will never get too well. Okay. Uh, and I believe he's alive now again, because uh, every every mutant is alive now. Okay. Uh, as for Angel kissing Gene passionately, uh, he's long. a number of people pointed this out. He long held a torch for her. Hell, all of the original X-Men, Beast, Iceman, Cyclops, and Angel were all competing for her attention constantly. Cyclops winning didn't mean Warren stopped competing. The implication here is that Warren is just needling Scott a little. I don't know. I I, I had a lot of friend groups where there's couples in the friend group, and I don't see <laughs> I don't see other men grabbing the significant other and yeah. just like planting a long kiss on them. Yeah, that that class was too passionate, and it was uh, both sides were into that kiss. It, it did weird. not like, and everyone and even Cyclops didn't seem to take too much from it. And like Angel was in a relationship with somebody in that page. Who was also uh, there, yeah. Yeah, it, it was weird. It was weird. It was a weird kiss, Justin. You can justify it however you want. Uh, Warren overstepped. Eric Tenoy writes us about uh, Colossus talk. Uh, you mentioned during the X-Men changeover from Cockrum to John Byrne that Cockrum seemed to like Nightcrawler and then Byrne enjoyed Wolverine more so that he came to the forefront, but neither of them did as much with Colossus. Uh, then during the Proteus battle, you point out the Colossus seemed to take human form instead of remaining metal throughout the confrontation. Uh, I should point out, wasn't there some point in these five issues we just read where Colossus tries to attack somebody but doesn't turn metal uh, and gets like knocked down real fast? Yeah. And then and he's like, like, oh, I should have turned metal first. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you should have. I think Cyclops is even like, yeah, you should have. Like, that's like it's a moment. Like, where it's he like, tells Nightcrawler, don't worry, I'm okay. And then he turns to metal. And right, it's like, what are you doing metal. it now for? Yeah. Anyway, uh, is it possible that Colossus is just a pain to draw when he's got his armor skin? Maybe something about keeping consistent horizontal lines over muscle, or maybe it was hard to color and artists didn't like it. Uh, the CW's Legends of Tomorrow features a character whose skin turns to steel, and he rarely does it, even when it would be useful, because it's an expensive special effect. While drawing metal might be cheaper than CGIing a live actor, I wonder if something about the Colossus design led him to being used less in the X-Men comics. Uh, I don't think he doesn't seem that hard to draw to me. He doesn't. Uh, I'm impressed at how much smarter our listeners are than we are. I didn't even think yeah. about that. And just like, I mean, Spider-Man seems like a huge pain in the ass to draw. With all those not webs like and stuff. Taking his costume off every chance they get. I, I remember sometimes in comics, it would seem like they somebody would not draw all the webbings on Spidey's costume yeah. for like far away pictures and stuff. He's for just far like away, red and blue. Ditko blob. wouldn't do it. And it, it yeah. always looked cool to me uh, as a kid. I always loved those panels. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do that. But Colossus, I don't know. Lines don't seem that hard. Uh, anyway, he adds... 
He's a mutant whose skin's turns into metal, so why does he have horizontal seams as if the metal has been applied to him like aluminum siding? <laughs> his normal skin doesn't have those lines, so why does his metal skin suddenly have ridges? And why doesn't his metal face have ridges too? That's a I great question, and we don't know. I can't answer any of those questions. I can't even begin to try. If you want to know prize, everyone, email us and explain why Colossus has lines across his body and not his face. Oh, speaking of no prizes, maybe I should read this one here. Uh, Willie Simpson emails. He wants a no prize. He's not getting one, but I, we might be able to get one. Well, okay. I went back and reread the first hundred issues of the fantastic four. And now I'm heading back to the original Spider-Man to revisit those classics. Something I noticed that I'd seen no discussion anywhere on the internet is how Stan and Steve botched the origin of Spider-Man in amazing Spider-Man one. I'm not talking about the legendary Peter Palmer. I snipped the panels below from the first page to show. It has a couple of panels of recapping the origin from the first issue. Okay. As you can see, Peter wasn't upset because of the choice he made to let the crook go that went on to murder Uncle Ben. Instead, he's mad at himself because his pursuit of show business made him too late to stop the surprise burglary of Uncle Ben's home. And yeah, he says, while I was busy showing off, an unarmed burglar fired one fatal shot at Uncle Ben when he was, when he was surprised robbing our house. As soon as I learned what had happened, I sped to the city, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's the, he doesn't mention the idea that he, um, I let, there's no mention of him letting the crook go. Yeah, I there's see that. I'm, I'm that looking is, at it right now in Marvel Unlimited, and yeah, there's no mention of a pretty crucial. Yeah. You also forget the hyphen in Spider-Man here. He won't escape Spider-Man. It's supposed to be hyphenated. Um, yeah, so it's just the idea that like, oh, he could have gotten there faster if he wasn't busy doing show business. So do you think Spider-Man had something that gave the crook, told the crook to rob his house? Here's what I think now, because it's like, oh, I, I could have got, I should have been there. I should have been there. I knew it was happening. Maybe when this guy was running by, it's like, hey, my <laughs> Uncle Ben keeps some bucks under the uh, couch. Uh, let's, I'm I want to be the man of the house. I want to be the man of the house. I want to bring money in. So take their money so I can really save them. Let's stick it to the man here. I don't mind. Yeah. You want to get away from the cops? I'm on your side, pal. Anyway, that's what I think might be happening here. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so if you want a no prize, you can't just point out mistakes, guys. You got to solve them. You got to gotta solve them, make them non-mistakes. Find a mistake and then prove why it's not a mistake. Yeah. So you have a no prize opportunity there, but you don't get a no prize. Keep up the great work. Love the X-Men content as they are my favorite. I was introduced to the world of X-Men uh, Marvel through the legendary 90s cartoon. Inspired me to start my own podcast years ago, the X-Men, the animated series podcast, where my where with the help of my extremely patient wife, we cover every episode and later the excellent 90s Spider-Man cartoon as well. Uh, you don't have to read my shameless plug on your show, but I did. Anyway, thank you, Willie. Thank you for pointing out that mistake in Amazing Spider-Man number one. That is very funny. Not to mention like, oh, and I let that guy go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I sent you this, Will. Um, Blake sent us an email about a Sandman comic. Yeah. I'm going to read it real quick. I'm going to skip some of it. It's real long. Um he read comics as a kid and he stopped reading them with the exception of spectacular things, Alan Moore, Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a couple of years later, my friend Monty got me the first trade of Blade Runner 2019 and it triggered something in me and I've dived back into comics deeply. So now that I am heavily interested in comics again, I've been binging comic related podcasts. Uh, it, is, it is wonderful that there are a lot of really good ones and I tend to find a new one and binge it. So he's been binging our podcasts. When I noticed you were coming up on a Sandman run, which I've been enjoying, I noticed that number eight was the first issue you were covering. And it occurred to me that I would probably be listening to it while in my office and you would be talking about a scene hanging on my wall. Two years ago, just a couple of months before COVID struck, 
Just as I was about to get back into comics, I lost two lifelong friends in a two-week period and I was involved in dealing with their belongings in various respects. The one involved in the story was a lifelong comics fan. His oldest friend inherited his many thousands of comics and I wound up with his books and quite a few graphic novels. He was a gayman as well as Love and Rockets fanatic. It went on to a lot of conventions and talked with Neil many times and I wound up with a lot of signed items. While cleaning out some of his condo, I found the two pages of original Sandman art uh, that he's attached here. Uh, if I hadn't found them, they would have ended up in the trash as he had no family left. So these are two pages from issue eight, Will, of the death visiting a dream in the park. Yeah, in Washington Square Park. He's got two pigeons. pages of original art from that comic. Oh, beautiful. Uh, and it's just really, really cool. Love it. It's I an mean, amazing it's... story, Blake. I'm glad those things found you. And, and it's a nice way for your friend's memory to live on, I think. Yeah, they're beautiful pieces of art. It's a nice, nice gift, even if it's sad circumstances that... Uh that led to you getting them. And it's one of the, one of the best issues of comics I've ever read. Uh, and also we had an email from Ben who sent us a video of Herb Trimp. Um, did you watch any of that video? Not yet, but I am excited to. Uh, it's like a 30 minute, not quite 30 minutes video of like Herb Trimp in the bullpen, just sort of talking about making comics. It's very interesting. I do think guys like Herb and Don Heck and some of the other non Kirby Ditko greats sometimes get short shrift and they were all very good, especially those early guys. Yeah. Like being second to Kirby and Ditko is not a knock. Right. How many more do we have time for, Will? One more. One more. Uh, let's see. Paul. This is Paul Fung. Mm -hmm. Dear Milksops, I don't have a question, but I'm writing to you so that you have to keep doing Mutants and Mailbag episodes. That is the only way to ensure that we'll keep reading X-Men comics. That's right. Um, something happened to me recently that I thought you and only you might find interesting. I was working from home and heard my five-year-old son playing in the other room. He was talking to himself, and at first I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I listened closer and realized this is what he was saying. Where's Steve Ditko? I can't find Steve Ditko. <laughs> what? This is his five-year-old son uh, playing by himself. Uh, this was quite a surprise because even though my son loves superheroes, I didn't think he knew who Steve Ditko was. Like any Pennywaste, I'm a big Ditko fan, but I didn't remember mentioning him. Was my son being haunted or possessed? I should point out my son doesn't know who Steve Ditko is either. Uh, so this is a fun story. It turned out that the whole thing came from the Lego Marvel video games. In these games, Stan Lee is a playable character and has all the powers of the heroes he co-created. So in my friend's mind, Stan Lee is one of the most powerful people in the Marvel universe. So my son has made a Stan Lee figure from his Lego people. My wife had then suggested Steve Ditko as another character who could possess the powers of his creations. As we know, Ditko is responsible for everything from Daredevil's costume to the COVID vaccine. Wow. So this was a smart move. <laughs> uh, anyway, this led to my son inventing adventures with Stan and Steve as the main characters. Kids love deceased non-Ajarian comic creators more than Paw Patrol. Uh, I wish Ditko was in the Lego video game. Uh, it's very, very funny. <laughs> the idea of like playing the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko adventures. <laughs> Here's a question after all. Who would you rather be haunted by? Stan Lee or Steve Ditko? I would rather be haunted by, well, it's a tough one. I think Stan, he seemed happier than Steve. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends. If Although he also talk... probably wouldn't shut up. Like I right. feel like Ditko would leave me alone, but Stan, he'd be like, Hey, that's a good breakfast over there. The most, you know, scrambled eggs <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah. I think if you had Steve Ditko haunting your house, you'd stay in one room. Yeah. Largely. You could just set up a nice room for him and, and close the door and he would just never come out of it and be very content. Yeah. Stan would be very, you'd always, you'd have to tell everyone, by the way, I'm haunted by Stan Lee. Yeah. You're going to see him. 
just reminds me of a character I created, the Incredible Hulk. And you'd be like, co-created, Stan. He's like, no, no, you know, I thought of it. This remembers me. I was working with uh, Pam Anderson on the uh, uh, Hookerella, <laughs> Stripperella, Stripperella, Hookerella. You somehow took a very base idea and made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I want Stanley haunting me. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to his ghost, but maybe like an annual haunting by Stan would be kind of fun. If he was haunting a house in my neighborhood, I'd like to go to that house to visit. Yeah. But if it's in my house, I choose Ditko. Okay. Thank you for writing, everybody. We've got more emails to go. So we'll be doing another Mutants and Mailbags episode in the near future. Yeah, so you can email us at screwitcomics at gmail. we got a Twitter, Screw It Comics on Twitter, and an Instagram, Screw It Comics. I uh, would love for you to, guys to follow that. Please follow that. Hey, you can think- rate and review us. We always forget to say that. We have a lot yeah. of great reviews on, on, the, on the Apple podcast, but hey, we could always use more. Yeah, we'd love for people to discover our podcast. I think next episode is Jam Day Mateus. Day Mateus. Jam Day Mateus. I keep mispronouncing it. Um, yeah, I think that's next week. I think that's right. So we're we're going from Chris Claremont to JM. Oof. What? Who are we? It's all downhill after that, guys. <laughs> we don't deserve it. After that, it'll be interviewing my turd floating in a toilet. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs> If, if, if it speaks, it could be an interesting interview. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. comics.